Amen. Amen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things, like we just saw, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul writes this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And in Genesis 12, we read of the call that that God put upon the, the nation of Israel. The Lord said to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then Jesus said 2,000 years ago, Matthew 5, as a multitude gathered on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, he said, you are the salt of the earth. And you know what salt was primarily used for back in the day, Jesus' day? It it wasn't used to to salt your French fries, right? It, it, It was primarily used to prevent meat from decaying, to prevent things from rotting. And Jesus says to us, to the church, to us in this room who claim Christ, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That'd be kind of dumb, right? Light a lamp and you cover it up. Instead, they put it on a stand that gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We're going to pray, and I'm going to ask you guys to pray with palms open. We do that symbolic that we're ready to receive from God. And, you know, I'm so convinced that today is the most important message that I've ever preached you know, I believe that every Sunday. The day I wake up and don't believe it is a day to retire or to go to heaven, right? You know, I believe it's so important that the God has his way. It, it, if his word does what he wants it to do. You ever think about the Bible? Bible's the only book that any, every time you read it, the author shows up, right? Isn't that awesome? Every time, God's going to show up today. He's going to be in this place because we're opening up his living word that can actually change our lives. So let's just pray to him. God, we love you. And, and God... You're awesome. Nothing compares to you. You love us with an unfailing, undying, unquestionable love. And God, I pray today that that the things that were written in the past, that they will teach us today, they'll encourage us today, that that we'll heed the warnings you place upon us today, God. And, And God, we'll realize the call you place on our lives to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. We love you. We need you. God, help me to say what you want me to say. Spirit, have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to show you something before we start off here, something that I'm pretty excited about. I don't know if you can see that. That's three minutes and eight seconds. That was my drive to church this morning. That is so awesome. It is so awesome. You know, uh, we're in the call to Zach, and I told Gentile, when my car goes in drive, and I start moving forward, hit the start button. I said, we're going to set a record today. And he goes, okay, Bob, make sure you don't go over the speed limit. I said, dude, dude, 
you're, now you're knocking all my fun out of it. But uh, 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 we moved on Friday, and you know, thanks to um, John Warinsky and Dan McClish, they gave you sausages outside. They're having a breakfast in two weeks, a men's breakfast. Uh, thanks to um, Bill Mack. Thanks to Jane Samaria, Lee Yost, and her kids came over. Uh, the Snell's uh, kids came over. And, and uh, if I left anybody out, I'm sorry. Uh, we moved on Friday. I'm old, you know. I'm sore this morning, but I'm excited. Went to a great convention yesterday. But three minutes and eight seconds, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Okay. All right. Maple Grove. Are you ready for chapter 16 of the story? Wow, that's... Come on, you know, like I like to say, it's, this is like a middle school dance, right? It, it works. It always goes better if you participate with me, okay? Maple Grove, are you ready for chapter 16 of the story? Yeah. All right, all right, me too. Seriously. You know, it, it, and after the day, we're going to be halfway through this journey into God's Word, the greatest and most compelling story of all time. And again, we're in chapter 16 of the story, and, and what we've learned in the last couple of weeks is that the nation of Israel has come to this place where they're a divided nation. It, 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 up in the north, you have the northern kingdom called Israel, and in the south, you have the southern kingdom called Judah. The nation, it, it's divided. And during this time, there were 38 kings, and 33 of those kings were not good. God said this of those 33 kings, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's right. Only five out of 38 kings had a heart for God. Only five out of 38 kings tried to do things God's way. The reign of the other 33 kings was marked by sin, rebellion, idolatry, and pride. Now, now over this 208-year period, God also sent prophets or, or messengers, watchmen who came in and tried to warn the people, look, you're not doing things God's way. And here's what's going to happen. They warned him, hey, if you keep going down this road, you're headed for destruction. That's what you're going to face. Nine times God sends prophets over this 200 plus year period, and the people simply ignore them and continue to live their own way. And so here's what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 15, and 16. It says this, that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people in his temple. Now, well, why did God warn them again and again? Because he had compassion on his people, because he loved his people, because he, he loved the temple, he loved this nation. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. You see, eventually God had had enough. The Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. Nothing could stop it. Understand, God is a great, is a God of great compassion and mercy. This is your notes, but it's the second paragraph you're taking notes because I changed it. Okay. Uh, we're coming back to the first paragraph. This is the second paragraph, but this is good stuff. God is a God of great compassion and mercy, and so he warns us and warns us as a good, loving Heavenly Father. But there comes a point where God's justice has had enough, a point where his anger can no longer be restrained, and nothing can be done to stop it. You see, there is a, a point for 
rebellious, sinful, idolatrous people, there's a point of no return. There's a point where God's anger cannot be restrained. It's like God is saying to people, he said, hey, this is not what I called you to be. This is not how I wanted you to live. Remember, we said time and time again throughout uh, our study that, that God building, the reason God built this nation to begin with, all the way back in Genesis 12, chapter 2 of the story, you know, God called this nation, the reason God called this nation was, so that for, these, was for these people to what? Reflect his power, reflect his person, reflect his purposes. Yeah, God, God called these people. He wanted them to live their lives in such a way that all the nations of the world, that all the nations, as they watched how they live, would also want to do life with God. God said, God wanted these people to reflect them so the, so the nations would know, here's what God is like. And they would see these people live their lives. Say, you know what? I want to do life with God too. And listen, we as Jesus followers, we have this very same mission. God has called you and I to be the salt of the earth, Amen. to be the light of the world. He's, he's called us. He's called me. He's called you to reflect his purposes, to reflect his character, to reflect his person, to reflect his purposes to this world. And you see, God wants people to look at my life and yours when he sees us in our neighborhoods, where we work, where we go to school. And he wants us, people to look at our life and say, you know what? I want to know that God. I want to know this God that you serve, this God of grace and mercy. So that is where we are in the story. As chapter 16 opens up, we're at the point where God, he's done. He's had enough with the northern kingdom. And I chose the title Defeat or Victory because we see both in this chapter. We see defeat and we see victory. And guess whose choice it is, right? We get to choose, right? <clears throat> we get to choose which path we're going to take. First point of your notes is the path to defeat. And this is the path that the northern kingdom was on in chapter 16. Here's what happens. Uh, the Assyrian army had been flexing their muscles in this area for years, conquering nation after nation. Their army is 185,000 strong. And they come onto the scene just as God removes his hand of protection from the nation of Israel. Now, on paper, the northern kingdom didn't have a chance anyway against the Syrian army. But if God would have fought for them, if God would not have removed his hand of protection, they'd have been just fine. But unfortunately for them, God had already withdrawn his hand of protection and blessing, which, by the way, is never a good thing. So the Syrian comes in, and for, for three years, they lay siege on Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. I mean, can you, and we read that, but can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine if, if an enemy surrounded Charlottesville for three years, cutting off supplies, cutting off our food supplies, killing our people? For three years, they watched people die. Thousands of people die. Then, then, then the Assyrian army would march thousand more off into exile, to disperse throughout their entire empire. And then what they would do is they would bring thousands more from other conquered nations to repopulate the area. So you see, the way that the Assyrian Empire kept the nation down and made sure they stayed down was, we're going to repopulate and bring in people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different languages, so the chance of them, you know, of a resurgence is very limited. So this nation, 10 of the 12 tribes that God called to reflect him, 
and bless the world. They're no more, right? They're gone. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 17, this disaster came upon the people of Israel because they worshiped other gods. Uh, they sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them safely out of Egypt and had rescued them from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They had followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them. And listen to this one. The people of Israel had also secretly done many things that were not pleasing to the Lord their God. That's a scary verse, right? I mean, we can hide things from other people, right? Uh, I may not know what you're doing. You may not know. You may hide it from your spouse, from your parents, from somebody. But guess who sees everything? They built pagan shrines for themselves in all their towns, from the smallest outposts to the largest walled city. They offered sacrifices on all the hilltops, just like the nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them. So the people of Israel had done many evil things, arousing the Lord's anger. These things were written to warn and teach us. Yes, they worshiped idols. Despite the Lord's specific and repeated warnings, turn from all your evil ways, obey my commands. But the Israelites would not listen. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he made with their ancestors, and they despised all his warnings. They worshiped worthless idols, so they became what? Worthless themselves. They followed the example of the nations around them, disobeying the Lord's command not to imitate them. They were just like the world around them, no difference. They even sacrificed their own sons and daughters in the fire and sold themselves to evil, arousing the Lord's anger. Because the Lord was very angry with Israel, he did what? He swept them away from his presence. I just read in Hosea this week, Hosea 9, 12. He was a prophet also warning, and he said this, where God says this, it will be a terrible day when I turn away and leave you alone. So, so, so what is the path that leads to defeat? What is the path that, that leads to God removing his hand of protection? What is the path that leads to God's anger no longer being restrained for God's people back then? Well, the prophet Jeremiah, he summed it up well in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. He says, my, my, my people have, have committed two sins. Two? Two main ones. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that can what? Not a water. And, and to, you know, where water's precious in that culture, it's like to say, hey, water's precious, but I'm going to pour all my water into this vessel that has cracks in it. You know, it can't even hold water. So that would really be dumb. And God said, you know what? I, I want to give you living water so you never thirst again. But, but yet, you're pouring your life into these things. You're looking for life in all these things that will never, ever, ever give you life. And, and see, the path that leads to destruction is it's when we turn away from God. And it's when we look for life in other places, in false gods and idols. Now understand, the southern kingdom is watching all of this go down. So if you're living in the southern kingdom and you see the Assyrians just wiping out the northern kingdom, suddenly you're realizing, guess what? You're, hey, God has done warning. It's kind of like the kid whose parents have warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them. You know, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. And then one day they realize, uh-oh, it's actually going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. I shouldn't. Man, if I had to stop right here, I'd been okay. But I had to push them just that much further, and now I'm about to pay. 
And so the southern kingdom kind of has this unique opportunity because they've seen what's happened to their brothers in the north. They've seen the path, and they've seen where that path has led. Okay, here's what happens. Predictably, the Syrian empire turns its attention to the southern kingdom. They, they got 185 soldiers who just came off a huge victory ready to take on the southern kingdom. And it would appear that the southern kingdom is going to fall the same way that the northern kingdom fell. However, there is an X factor in the southern kingdom, and his name is King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the first king, really the first king since David, who had a heart for God, who really tried to do things God's way. He did things differently. And as a result of how this leader lived, how Hezekiah lived, as a result of some of the commitments that Hezekiah made, Rather than, rather than the South experiencing the same devastation that the North experienced at this time, they actually experienced God's protection and God's blessing. So the Syrian army, they're knocking at the door. The people are terrified, and rightly so. I mean, not only is the Syrian army huge, they were extremely cruel and brutal during battle and after battle. They're the ones that develop and fine-tune the art of flaying your enemies, they tie you down on the ground and they peel off your skin layer by layer. And then when they let captive people off into their, their spread throughout their empire, they would take a sharp object and they drill a hole through your lip or your cheek. They would place a hook in it and then they would tie a rope for this hook and they'd hook me and they hook all of us together. And they just destroyed our homes, they killed our family. Now they, now they drilled into our lips, drilled the thing, and now we got this rope through us and they're just leading us off somewhere. I mean, the people are terrified. They're terrified. But Hezekiah speaks to them, and the way he speaks to them reminds them of the stories they heard about a great military leader named Joshua because he uses the same language. Here's what, he, here's what Hezekiah says in 2 Chronicles 32, 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Yeah, they're just an arm of flesh, and yeah, that's a lot of arms, 185,000 arms times two, but it's still just an arm of flesh. He says, and we have God with us. And the scripture says, if God is with us, right, who can be against us? Nobody. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. Now, the Syrians are really hoping to take the southern kingdom peacefully. They want to avoid bloodshed. They, uh, they don't want to fight if they don't have to. They're, they are totally into conquest without conflict if they can make it happen. And so Sennacherib... The king of Syria, it's not like something you order at McDonald's, right? I'll take one, two Sennacheribs and value size that, right? Okay, Sennacherib, he's a really shrewd guy. And what he does is he sends his leaders to the capital, to Jerusalem, to intimidate them. And he doesn't send his messengers to Hezekiah and the leader. He sends them to the people. And they speak to the people in the Hebrew language. Some psychological warfare. He hopes to create widespread panic among the people. And these messengers basically come to the city and they say, hey, we have a message from our great and mighty king, Sennacherib, value size him. Surely you must realize 
what I and the other kings of Assyria before me have done to all the people of the earth. Were any of the gods of those nations able to rescue their people from my power? Which of their gods was able to rescue his people from the destructive power of my predecessors? What makes you think your God can rescue you from me? Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Don't let him fool you like this. I say it again, no God of any nation or kingdom has ever yet been able to rescue his people from me or my ancestors. How much less will your God rescue you from my power? Now I'm thinking you don't want to stand too close to this joker because he's about, he's, he's about to get nuked, right? I mean, he's calling out God. He says, no God stood up to me and your God can't stand up to me either. He, your God can't save you. Your God isn't big enough. He's not strong enough. And what he's doing, he's lying to the people about what God can and what God cannot do. And here's what I know. I, I know that for many of us in this room, there's an enemy camped outside our doors and the odds seem impossible. I mean, it even seems too difficult for God, right? I mean, it, it seems too messy for him to clean up. It even seems too broken for him to put back together again. It seems too hard for him to redeem for good. I, I understand. Many times the enemy whispers and shouts in her ears, not even God, not even God can get you out of this one. And not even God can fix your marriage. And not even God can rescue you from that. And not even God can put those pieces back together again. Not even God can turn this thing around. Not even God can help you overcome that. And so what happens is that we oftentimes believe the, the lies of the enemy and we live in fear rather than in faith. 185,000 soldiers, I mean, what can we really do, right? But I want you to look at what, what Hezekiah does. I mean, he hears these threats. Here's what's going on, and, and you know, and in 2 Chronicles 32, verse, verse 20, a, a massive army surrounding him, enemy threatening him, his people freaking out. Very huge verse, what he does, hugely significant verse. Then Hezekiah, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to God in heaven. Amen. I love it. See the picture? Here's, here, here is King Hezekiah. And here's Isaiah, they're on their knees. God, we need your help. God, this is too big for us. But it ain't nothing but a thing to you, and we know it. And listen, anytime there's an army that big surrounding us, that's a really good thing to do. Get on our knees and pray. And I love the very next two verses. The very next verse, he prays, very next verse. And the Lord sent an, one angel who destroyed the Assyrian army with all its commanders and officers. And King James, I've always loved how King James worded it. I love this one. And, and, and it came to pass that night that an angel of the Lord went out and smote. That's, I, I don't want to be smote. I don't know about you, but smote doesn't sound good. He smote in the camp with assurance and a hundred, four score, and five thousand. And when they rose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. <laughs> Listen, when you wake up in the morning and you're dead, it's not a good day. <laughs> they woke up and they were dead. <laughs> And they continue, so Sennacherib was forced to return home in disgrace to his own land. And when he entered the temple of his God, some of his own sons killed him there with a sword. So much for Sennacherib supersized me. That, that is how the Lord God rescued Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem and from Sennacherib of Assyria. 
and from all the others who threatened them. So there was peace throughout the land, the end. No fight, no war, no battle. God sends one angel. (laughs) He's the God of angel armies, and he wipes out 185,000 soldiers. Hezekiah says, be strong and courageous because God is with us. God is with us, and who can be against us? And listen, when that moves from a slogan on our t-shirt or on our wall or a bumper sticker, when it moves from from our head to our heart, it's going to make all the difference in the world how you and I face things. It's going to give us a confidence in face of anything. You see, whatever difficulties in front of me, whatever difficulties in front of you, God is bigger. God is bigger. Jesus, not Satan, has all authority on heaven and in earth. Jesus is on his throne. He really is. He's on his throne right now ruling. So we kind of looked at the story and, and we saw how the nation is spared at this time because of Hezekiah's life and and I'm like, okay, what, 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 why? And I'm really interested in this because what happened there is what I want to happen, see happen in my life, and it's what I want to see happen in this church. I want to see God's hand show up in a powerful way in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. I, I want to see God. I want to see the God of angel armies unleash his power, his presence, and his purpose in this place among us, his people, like never before. So what was it that brought God's blessings? What was it that caused God to spare the southern kingdom at that time? What was it about Hezekiah? Well, basically, at the core, he made two commitments that were game changers, and the first commitment was he, had, he made a commitment to purity. Check out 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3. It's where we read about uh, the, the, the first 30 days of his administration. He's 25 years old at the time. It says, in the first month of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the doors of the temple of the Lord. Which means what? what, what, what where, the doors were what? They're closed. And they didn't want anybody worshiping God. And repaired them. So he reopened the door so people could worship God. And then he summoned the priests and Levites to meet him at the courtyard east of the temple. He says, listen to me, you Levites. Purify yourselves and purify the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all the defiled things from the sanctuary. Our ancestors were unfaithful and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned the Lord and his temple and they turned their backs on him. My sons, do not neglect your duties any longer. The Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to lead the people in worship and present offerings to him. And so these Levites get their other Levites together, and they purify themselves, and they purify the temple. And so the first month of of the first year of his administration, Hezekiah says, you know what? Our, Our answers, they were unfaithful. And they abandoned God, and and they're... They did not do things God's way, but we are going to do things God's way. And it begins with purification. He purifies the temple. 
He removes from the temple all the defiled things, all the things that had been brought into the temple that were offensive to God. He opens the door so the people could come in and worship. And now, purity, it's not a word we use a lot today, right? And we do, we kind of think it's kind of old-fashioned, right? Kind of prudish, kind of Victorian, right? The Puritans. And yet, this word purity and purifying seems to be an important word. You know, purifying our hearts, purifying our lives seems to invite the blessings of God and his protection. However, what many of us, and by the way, us includes me, is we want to be blessed by God. Okay, raise your hand if you don't want to be blessed by God. Okay, okay. Did, oh, did, she, did she do it, Dave? Did she do it? Oh, wait, Beth Lors does not want to be blessed by God. No. I know. That's all. People dying, we need some comic relief, don't we? It, we want to be blessed by God, but we don't want to live in the brokenness that is necessary for purification. And now, part of what's challenged for me personally, and I think for a lot of us in this room, is that our standard of purity isn't what it should be. We don't realize what in the temple is defiled. Because it's always been there. You see, we've grown up around these offensive things, the things that are offensive to God all around us. So we don't recognize that they need to be removed. And and see, here's the deal. We compare our level of purity to the level of the purity of our culture rather than the holiness of God. (laughs) Like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. At least I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm pretty good. So for many of us, there's a standard of purity problem. And what we have to do, we have to go back to God's word as our measurement to realize, you know what? Man, I got some things in my sanctuary, in the temple of my heart, that are are offensive to God, and I need to drag them out. The path of victory is, is marked by a commitment to purity and protection. And this week as I prepared this message, I can't, you see, it, pure, some, some things we like to be pure, like to think they're pure, right? And, and this week I, I came across a list from the uh, Food and Drug Administration, purity standards for food that we eat. It, it, I found it quite disturbing. And so I want to share it with you. <laughs> okay. Here's the FDA standard purity for apple butter. Okay. You'll be glad to know that if the mole count it's 12% or more, if it averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams or more, if it averages five or more whole insects per 100 grams, the FDA will protect you from it. Otherwise, it's okay to put on your toast in the morning. Ground cinnamon. For every 100 grains of ground cinnamon, it's okay to include 400 or more insect fragments, legs, heads, wings, and 22 or more rodent hairs. <laughs> Mm-mm-mm. Coffee beans. Coffee beans will get withdrawn from the market if an average of 10% or more are insect infested or if there's one live insect in each of two or more immediate containers. Mushrooms. FDA FDA says they cannot be sold if there's an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. 
tomato paste, pizza sauce, and other sauces can include 30 or more fly eggs per 100 grams. Alternatively, you can have 15 or more fly eggs and one or more maggots, or two or more maggots, but not all of the above. <laughs> Hot dogs. <laughs> you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Is that on your menu for lunch, cooking out today, are we? Next weekend? I'll spare you. But here's my point. We would like to think that the purity standard is pretty high with the food that we eat. But, you know, we just come to accept it. You know, even though I said that, you're not, are you going to give up tomato sauce and cinnamon? We're going to go ahead and do it. And... and and I just wonder if for many of us, maybe the standard of purity in our lives needs to be reexamined. And listen, the best way that you and I pure, purify ourselves is, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, washing with the Word. We let the Word of God wash over us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In 1 John 1, 8, John talks about, you know, how we purify ourselves under the new covenant with Jesus. He says, here's what it looks like to purify yourself. It, he says in John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then he says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. In other words, listen. If we take what is in the dark and we bring it into the light, if we open up the doors of the temple, right, and we drag out the stuff that's in there that is offensive to God, we drag out all the defiled things and we put them into the light. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and he'll cleanse us. He'll purify us. He'll purify us from all unrighteous, all the junk. You got junk. I got junk, Right? He'll purify us from all that stuff if we can. See, we don't purify ourselves. It's not rituals, but ra rather through Jesus, God purifies us when we confess our sins, when we repent of them, when we take what is in the darkness and bring it into the light. And listen, until we're willing to do that, we shouldn't expect God's blessings in our life. I understand, it's extremely presumptuous for me to ask God, God, bless my life, bless my ministry, when I'm knowingly offending him. It's, think of it this way. You go on vacation, right? And a guy's supposed to cut your yard, and he doesn't do it. You're gone eight weeks. You come back, it's like that tall. And you know that your Kmart push mower isn't going to get the job done. Your neighbor, Joe, he has a John Deere lawnmower. He calls it a tractor because it makes him feel more like a man, but it's, a, it's really a lawnmower. <laughs> and, 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 you go, and you're going over the bar, and you go over to his house to bar it. He has this little dog, annoying dog, you know, the kind that barks all the time, messes in your yard. And you're walking the bar this thing, and the dog gets on your pant leg. And you just give it a swift slide kick to get his attention. Boom. As you do, you look up, and there's Joe on the porch watching you kick his little dog, Fluffy. <laughs> Let me ask you, is now the best time to say, hey, Joe, can I borrow your lawnmower? It'd be, you got run over by a lawnmower, right?
So you have something you need to work out with Joe, right? There's something between you and Joe. And here's my question. What is there between you and God right now? And, and, and you deal with your stuff, I'll deal with mine. What needs to be addressed in your life? What do you need to repent of? Uh, what do you need to confess? I mean, other than Beth Belors, everybody wants God to bless them in this room, right? <laughs> and we're saying that, right? But you know what? For us to ask God to bless us when, God, when we kicked his dog, right? It's like, it doesn't make sense. God bless me, but I'm not going to live for you. Lord, work in my life, but I'm going to still do what I want to do. It just doesn't make sense. We got to deal with this. These things were written in the past to teach us and to warn us, right? There's a time where God's anger is not restrained. And you know, sometimes we approach God, asking God to bless, and we think, well, all this other stuff doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody else is doing it. I, I don't know. Maybe there's something God would like us to deal with this morning. I don't know. Um, maybe it's pride or, or maybe it's selfishness or Maybe it's a loose tongue, I don't know. Maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's an activity or habit that's between you and God. Maybe, I don't know. But what needs to be removed? What have we, and we include, it so includes me, what, what have we allowed? What have you allowed into the temple of your walk with God that is offensive to him, that is in the way of your walk with him? Maybe it's a show that needs to be removed from your DVR. Maybe it's a magazine subscription that needs to be canceled. Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be made right. Maybe it's an addiction you need to get help for. Maybe it's a secret sin that you need to drag out of the dark and bring it before a faithful, trusted brother or sister. Say, man, can you help me with this? It's killing me. Hezekiah in his own life, he, he drug in pride and he didn't know it. And he had to repent of his pride so that God could move in his life again. Is there anything between you and God that needs to be addressed? Any areas where you're kicking the dog? Isaiah, at the end of his book, talks about God's power. And, and in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, he says this to the people. Look, look, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save you. I mean, God's not a, a T-Rex, right, with short arms. God's arms are not too short to save you. <laughs> okay. Okay, <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> Sorry. The problem isn't that God can't help you, nor is his ear too dull to hear. God doesn't have a hearing problem, Steve. Steve, you keep asking me to move in your life, and you're wondering why I'm not. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. And so purification is what we see with Hezekiah. And that's what many of us are missing in our lives to receive God's blessing. The path to victory is purification. Another commitment Hezekiah made was to commit to prayer. And don't worry. It'll be, it'll be quick. You know, when 185,000 enemy soldiers came knocking, he prayed. A little later in his life, he's going to face, he's going to be so sick, he's about to die. And he prayed to God, and God gave him 15 more years. Time and time again, Hezekiah prays in desperation to God, and God moves and acts on his behalf. 
Understand, we will never, we'll never be the praying church that God has called us to be until we recognize our desperation and our dependence on him. You see, when I truly acknowledge how desperate I am, that's when praying becomes as natural as breathing. And that's when Paul's command, pray without ceasing, is a blessing, not a curse. Because like, man, I'm going to pray all the time because I'm so screwed up and I so need help. I'm going to come call to my dad all the time. God, I need your help. God, I can't do this. God, there's no way I'm going to make it without you. And as a church, God, we need your help. God, we can't do this. God, we're so stupid. We're so dull. We need your help. We have prayer this Saturday. Hezekiah prayed with faith and God moved, moved in his life, moved in the life of the nation. And Maple Grove, those are two things that I challenge us as a church to commit to. The pure, I can't commit to your pure, I can't commit to mine, right? Do some house cleaning, right? Some spring cleaning in the temple of my heart. And you can commit to that as well. We can commit to prayer. And so God spares the southern kingdom during the life of Hezekiah. Unfortunately, his son takes over and it gets bad again and eventually the southern kingdom is going to fall too. And, and, and so we're kind of in this place, a story where you're like, nothing seems to be working for these people. You give them the law, they don't keep it. You give them kings, all the kings are bad. You give them prophets, they ignore the prophets. It's like there's no hope. And listen, it's no coincidence that in Isaiah, we start reading prophecy after prophecy about Jesus. 700 years before he's born, Isaiah begins to say, here's where your hope lies. It's not in the law. It's not in the prophets. It's not in your kings. Your hope lies in Christ. Your hope lies in the new king that is coming. He's often called, Isaiah is often called the gospel prophet because he wrote so much about Jesus. You know, this past Monday at our elders meeting, I, I shared with the guys how, how much I'm loving the story uh, and how it's been really challenging each week to try to prepare a message. And I also told them, I said, and honestly, guys, I'm just kind of getting tired of the Old Testament. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's just kind of wearing me out. And you know what? That's exactly the point. The Old Testament, you just get tired of it. It doesn't work. It wasn't meant to work. Well, meant to work for one thing, you need Jesus. It was meant to point to Jesus, that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only one that can save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. And, and Father, I, I pray that in the, in the next few moments that, that we, like Hezekiah, God, that you'll enable us to take our eyes off our circumstances and our eyes off the army and situations that are surrounding us and to put our eyes on you, to take our eyes off the arms of flesh that are against us and put our eyes on the one who is for us. And God, I pray that in the next few minutes it'll be a time of honesty and a, a time of purification, Lord. That I pray that us in this room, we'll stop playing games with you, that we'll examine ourselves. And we'll realize, God, that maybe, maybe the reason you're not able to move the way you want to move is because we got some junk we need to deal with.
God, I just pray you give us the courage, Lord, to repent of the things that are offensive to you. And then we'll just stop asking you to bless us when we knowingly and willfully keep doing things and living in ways that bring dishonor and discredit to your name. And God, forgive us because you put a calling on our lives to be soft and to be light. And God, sometimes I've lost my saltiness at times. But you can help us get it back again, Lord, so that we can be the people you want us to be. And God, as we turn our eyes to you, God, may we realize that it's your blood that purifies us and all we have to do is confess and acknowledge and repent and want to change and you'll help us. And God, I pray that the next few minutes will be a time of worship and a, and a time of prayer. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah talks about a, a time when he went into the temple and he saw God and he, he, he said, I, I saw the Lord. And he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then Isaiah said, you know what? There's, these angels were there, and, and they were flying around in the temple. And they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And Isaiah said that when he saw God, when God was in his rightful place, that he fell to the ground and said, woe is me, I'm a sinner. And I live among sinners, and God lifted them up and purified him. You know, we're going to sing some songs in a minute. The whole intent, the whole intent is for you and I to put God in his right place. And when we put God high and lifted up in his right place, we wind up at our right place. Bowing before our king. Bowing before the one who loves us and died for us and wants to move in us and live through us who never abandons us, who never gives up on us, who is stronger than anything that we could ever face. And during this time, you know, we're going to sing two songs. And during this time, if you need prayer, every week our elders are off to the sides, and they're off to the sides after service to pray with you, to talk to you, to be there for you. You know, but there's a path to defeat and a path to destruction. You know, if there's places in your life where you're kicking the dog. You can repent today. Maybe you need to come up here and just, you know, if you want to come up here and you, know, you want prayer, we'll pray for you. If you just want to come up here and just kneel before God and say, God, you know, I'm, God, I, I, you know the junk, God, and I need your own. If you just want to do that on your own, you can do that. You can do that where you're standing. But don't miss this opportunity. These things were written in the past to teach us, to warn us, encourage us. And the courage of Hezekiah is that if we make a commitment to purity and to prayer, then God can move in our lives the way he wants to. Let's stand. Father God, we love you. And God, I pray for us in this room, God. You know, Satan wants us to ignore it. He, he wants me to keep kicking the dog and asking you to bless me. And God, break our hearts for the things in our life that have already broken yours. And thank you for putting up with us and wanting us back every time we leave you. And God, I just pray that anybody needs to deal with some stuff, they just do. Amen.